Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Marianne Russo. I'd like to start off by thanking my sponsor for today's show, Mayor Johnson. With every child, there is a solution. Explore a variety of educational solutions at mayorjohnson.com. And you can save 20% by using their promo code 20, I'm sorry, solution 20 at checkout. Uh, Mayor Johnson is the world's uh, super source for special education and board maker resources. So go over and take a look. Um, This is a really special interview for all of you suffering with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, but it's particularly important for me. And uh, for those of you that listen to my show or read my blogs, you often hear me refer to the amygdala. And, you know, I'm sure you're quite frankly sick of hearing me discuss the chain of events in the limbic system, you know, stemming from the amygdala as it pertains to mental illness and uh, anxiety disorders in children. And I mention it frequently because it's key to understanding your child. And I got this education I, quite frankly, never wanted in an effort to understand my middle daughter, um, who was um, had pandas and developed an anxiety and panic disorder uh, 14 years ago. And it really almost foreshadowed the story that would unfold in my life. Um, you know, my education about the amygdala took a surprising and really emotionally painful turn when my youngest daughter uh, was struck with a very severe form of juvenile fibromyalgia three years ago. And, you know, I say surprising because it turns out that the amygdala um, could be at the root uh, of not only one of my child's disorders, but in my child's with fibromyalgia as well. So. Ashok Gupta has spent his life's work trying to unravel the mystery of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. He is the head of the Chronic Fatigue uh, Syndrome and Fibromyalgia Clinic in London. And he has a really unique perspective on these disorders because he himself was a sufferer of chronic fatigue. And what he's learned about their possible causes, the effect on, I mean, so many things, the immune system, um, the pain loop, the fatigue, the sensory stimulation, the gastro issues, muscle pain. I mean, we're going to go through it all. But, you know, he, he will give you a key to not only understanding but possibly reversing these syndromes. And I just want to say before I bring him on the air that um, we are not saying here today that chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia are psychological disorders. They are not. They are real physical conditions with physical symptoms. And what we are going to discuss is the possibility that they are rooted in the dysfunction of brain messages, primarily from the amygdala. And, um, you know, that's why these people have become so debilitated. And we are not in any way diminishing uh, what you're going through, believe me. So it's an honor to bring on Ashok Gupta. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Marianne. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm just so excited that you're here. Um, you know, we have a lot to go over, so I'm going to try to move, you know, fairly quickly because these these are really very complex disorders. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, you yourself were a sufferer with chronic fatigue. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so I suffered from the condition for about three years uh, whilst I was at university. And uh, for me, the experience was obviously very debilitating 
And the only way I can describe it, it's like the worst day of flu that you've ever had times 100. <laughs> so it, it right. kind of mimics, uh, you know, a lot of those symptoms of very, very severe flu. But, you know, your body's just so exhausted. You mentally can't think. I couldn't even pick up a book. And luckily, I was never bed-bound, so I was never at the stage where I couldn't actually physically get out of bed. But apart from that, I had all the symptoms, you know, all the classic symptoms of CFS. And uh, from time to time, I also had uh, pain in the joints, pain in the limbs and the muscles as well, although pain wasn't there throughout my experience of the condition. And it took me, you know, quite a long time to really research the, the condition, as a lot of people do. And I eventually found out a lot about the brain neurology of emotion, the brain neurology of stress, the brain neurology of pain, and also the brain neurology uh, related to, um, you know, stress-related conditions. And I put lots of the jigsaw pieces together until I came up with a hypothesis that, that made sense to me and then had that published. Um, so that was really my journey really, from, um, from having the condition, not knowing anything about it, it really was like a, you know, a brick wall in front of me where I couldn't move forward right through to getting myself 100% better and um, then looking to help other people with this. And, and that you're doing. You know, it, it's my understanding. I know you just mentioned the uh, muscle ache and the um, joint pain. Um, you know, my understanding has always been that although, you know, these do accompany chronic fatigue, um, the chronic fatigue is more marked but marked by fatigue. And an overall, like you said, um, <clears throat> feeling of, of, you know, poor feeling of well-being like you have the flu, where fibromyalgia, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is more accompanied by pain. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us the difference between the two and why they're so often found together? Uh, yes, well, I've heard them referred to as the evil twin sisters. <laughs> and true. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they share a lot of characteristics. And interestingly, um, your diagnosis will be based on which country you're in. There are certain countries where CFS is diagnosed, or ME, as it's sometimes known in Europe, is diagnosed far more often than fibromyalgia, whereas in places like, for instance, Germany, um, fibromyalgia is the most common um, diagnosis. So I think there's a huge crossover between these conditions. And obviously with CFS, as you say, there's more of the kind of immune-type symptoms with fibro, there's more of the pain symptoms. But I see, these, I see all of these conditions as a, a scale of illnesses. So multiple chemical sensitivities, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME. They are all a range of different conditions which all have one common component, which is overstimulation of the central nervous system. And the, the cluster of symptoms that each patient experiences will be different according to their own genetic, psychological, and physical vulnerabilities. And, and you know, so, a lot of people use them interchangeably. Yes, exactly. So a lot of people will refer to CFS and fibro in the same breath. As I said, I do think that they are, they are different conditions in the sense of the cluster of symptoms, but actually um, there's an underlying common cause to them. And I find that... CFS is often, often contracted after a kind of flu virus or some kind of unknown stomach bug, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, fibromyalgia often comes after some kind of physical injury or accident or a chronic pain syndrome, which has suddenly got much worse. Right. And chemical sensitivities tend to come from when someone is stressed and they've had exposure to some kind of uh, toxin. Right. And so sometimes the triggering event or the triggering situation can also have an influence on whether it develops as CFS or fibromyalgia. 
Well, that's really interesting because in my daughter's case, it started with a head injury and a concussion. And, you know, a year later, um, over the course of that first year, um, she became allergic to everything. I mean, she can't even take an- antibiotics. She would wind up in anaphylactic shock. But, um, you know, let's talk about some of these triggers because, um, you know, they really do vary. And um, it can, you know, become something. Some people feel that it's from a period of severe emotional stress. Um, some mm-hmm. feel that it's from a physical trauma. Um, can you tell us how these triggers play a role? Um, you know, how could someone that has a physical injury then develop this pain loop? Okay, well, the, the, the brain neurology of this is absolutely fascinating. and I'm going to try and just create a, a very simple model for, for everybody to, to, to get this. Um, essentially, imagine there's two components to this. There is often acute stress, so emotional stress, it might be mental stress in terms of working very hard at work, combined with a physical trauma or a physical trigger. And as I said, in fibromyalgia, it's often some kind of physical injury. CFS, it's um, you know, some kind of virus or bacterial infection, and MCS is a chemical trigger. Now, what happens is, because the nervous system is already overstimulated, so, so the stress system is already overstimulated, that brain structure that we're going to talk about, the, the amygdala, is on high alert and so when the physical injury comes that part of the brain inappropriately starts reacting to the symptoms from that injury right it's like it's like a very sensitive part of the brain that's looking for something else to react to because it's on emotional high alert so it then begins to react to the physical symptoms from the body and once it's once that trauma has occurred in the amygdala, and when I say amygdala, it also involves many other brain structures, such as the hypothalamus, the right. pituitary gland, and the, uh, the insula. Or there's many different structures involved, but the amygdala is the part of the brain that really makes that final decision as to what to react to. In that emotion, highly emotional state, it then starts reacting to a physical aspect of the, from the body. And this is the really interesting point that I, that I want everyone to, to, to really think about and reflect on. The amygdala does not differentiate between emotional triggers, physical triggers, immune triggers, etc. As far as the amygdala is concerned, if you are in danger, it will have to come up with a reaction to protect you. So if a wild tiger is running towards you, the amygdala has to make sure that you can run away from it. If you are suffering from um, a virus or a bacterial infection, the amygdala has to make sure that you avoid the situations that might bring that on or that if the body is in that state, how to best help the body cope with that. And there is some recent research showing that um, uh, certainly in chemical sensitivities, the amygdala's responses are involved in allergies and sensitivities and things like that. If the external stimulus is a pain, then the amygdala will get triggered. And you know we have anxiety responses when we experience pain because it's got to decide how you can better solve that pain in your body and get away from anything that's causing you that pain. So the brain is constantly deciding how to protect you from danger. It's our evolutionary response. The issue arises when that part of the brain overreacts and overprotects and gets stuck in its own loop. That's what this condition is. It's, a, it's an evolutionary Im- protective impulse that has become over-triggered and got caught in a vicious cycle in the brain. You know, and I'm so glad that you're coming on to discuss this because, you know, as I said, I've been researching the amygdala, it seems like, forever. 
And, you know, in going to literally the best in the world um, to try to find out about um, my daughter with the fibromyalgia, they kept referring to the pain loop. And, you know, I, I didn't realize how lost that was on me until I found you because the amygdala really is what controls the pain loop. Yes, imagine the, the amygdala is like, um, it's like the thing that adds fuel to the fire. So if there's a fire burning, the amygdala is the part of the brain that will decide whether more fuel needs to be added as a reaction. And so there are other parts of the brain. There's lots of parts of the brain that are involved in pain um, sensitivity, pain reaction, etc. But it's the amygdala that decides how much the volume is turned up on that reaction. So that, that's probably a better analogy. Now, how do we turn the volume up on this reaction? And so um, a lot of people in fibromyalgia discuss this idea that the pain signals are definitely there and it's a real physical illness. But what makes it even worse for the patients is that the, vol- the amygdala is turning up the volume of those signals so that the experience for someone is incredibly severe. Right. It, it's the most intense pain anyone could ever imagine. Um, You know, which is what I think people also that don't have fibromyalgia or love someone with fibromyalgia don't really understand. Um, And it is really physical because, you know, like in my daughter's case, I was telling you before we went on the air, um, when she's in a flare, it actually looks like she has, you know, uh, half-cut golf balls all over her back from the muscle spasms. Um, So, you know, this is a really, real, really painful um, disorder. And, you know, I want to move on to... um, the genetic predisposition, because I know that Dr. Enlander um, is going to be doing some genetic studies. But does this tend to run in families? You see, it's very difficult to decipher whether there is a, uh, you know, how much of it is a genetic predisposition and how much of it is it related to um, the anxiety levels that someone inherits through, through nurture. Now, let me explain this because I want people to be very clear on this. There is definitely a genetic predisposition. There is definitely some kind of link. But I don't think it's as strong as, you know, it's not, a, it's not obviously a purely genetic condition. I don't think the genetic connection is as strong. But what they do have evidence of is that certainly the level of anxiety of the amygdala can be related to the mother's level of anxiety. And that can be related to... Uh, during pregnancy, how anxious the mother is during pregnancy, and also during those first five to ten years of, of nurture, how much the amygdala is stimulated, what, always what the, what the factory setting of the amygdala is, and how much it reacts as you grow up. And so that can then give people a higher predisposition to having the condition uh, through those two mechanisms. So one is the, the nature, the genetic predisposition, and one is the nurture, how much um, uh, higher stimulation of the amygdala is being passed on through nurture. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I see that um, a lot of the, the parents I speak to and a lot of the adults that I speak to, um, their anxiety tend to run in the family. I mean, I know that I have, you know, a lot of anxiety um, disorders in my family. Um, yeah. So I could see how, you know, that could affect it as well. And, you know, yeah. stress is really key in this. Um, 
you know, we discussed before about how you could have a physical trauma um, that could really set off this chain of um, events. And, you know, I was also told that, you know, sometimes people have what they think is a minor car accident, but, you know, a year later wind up with, um, you know, fibromyalgia. But, you know, stress is universal for people with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So, you know, I always sort of was trying to unravel, you know, the question of the earth, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the stress of the injury or a life event cause the disorder, or does the disorder cause the stress? Combination of both. <laughs> That's always the, the, uh, the, the, the simple but complex answer. Um, so essentially, initially, the predisposition is someone that uh, is prone to stress. Their amygdala is more sensitive, as it were. Then an injury, uh, so the, a life event comes along which increases the stress, and then the injury comes along which increases the stress even further. And because those have now increased, the body is now overstimulated. And because the body is overstimulated, the resources are being used up for the body very quickly. And then you get secondary complications in the body, pain, magnification, etc. And those symptoms loop back to the brain, which is already in a highly stressed state. And then the brain thinks, oh no, you've got to be kidding me. We've got even more uh, pain and negativity to deal with. I need to overstimulate the body and the brain to alert us to the danger that's happening here. And then it overstimulates. So that's how you get caught in that loop, the chicken and egg. They both feed on each other. But initially, the predisposing factor, I believe, is, that, is a sensitized amygdala. So if there was an egg, that would be the, the first egg. And in terms of why is that amygdala highly sensitized, more and more research is showing that the inhibitory mechanism, so the mechanism in the brain that stops the amygdala getting out of hand, that part of the brain for some reason becomes weakened in people who get this condition. So it may initially be weak, but then as they get the condition, it becomes weaker and weaker. And the theory is that when the brain is overreacting and sending out the stress hormones and neurotransmitters, that inhibitory mechanism, the very mechanism designed to calm that reaction down, may get damaged or may not function correctly. And that's why the amygdala gets out of hand. Well, we're going to discuss uh, later in the interview, um, you know, how you break the vicious cycle, because that's really what your program is all about. But we, I want to talk about um, the viral connection, because there is a very strong viral connection, like you said, especially to chronic fatigue. And, um, you know, many viruses are thought to be possible triggers, mononucleosis, um, Coxsackie, which I think a lot of people don't know, very common childhood um, disorder. Um, you know, there are a lot of different viruses. And, you know, I, I think there are some questions about how, um, the immune system becomes so dysregulated in these people. And, you know, I have personal confusion, um, and I know a lot of other people do, about blood testing because, um, you know, the, you go in and they, they took really, you know, massive amounts of uh, blood to, to run all of these tests, and, you know, you'll come up with astronomical, um, you know, as my daughter did, astronomical counts on um, her titers. Now, to me, that would... Initially, it signaled that, well, that must mean that her immune system was doing the right thing because she developed all these titers to fight the infection. But I understand that's not how it works. So how does your body respond to these viruses? And okay. um, what do these tests show? Okay, well, it, it's a very interesting picture, and it's very confusing. Because traditionally, we might think that the immune system is either on 
or it's off. And if it's on, why isn't it clearing all these various dormant viruses in the body? The way to look at the immune system is that the immune system only functions correctly if it is responding appropriately to the situation. Let me give the analogy of some soldiers guarding a castle. So the soldiers are guarding the castle, the castle, and there is a north entrance and there is a south entrance to the castle. Now, <coughs> the soldiers have just fought off an attack on the south gate of the castle. But they've sustained a lot of damage there and they've just, you know, they've only just managed to fight off the virus. So they're pretty on guard in case another attack comes in on the south gate. Now, what's actually happened is that the, the south gate, there aren't going to be any further attacks on the south gate. But because those um, soldiers have become traumatized, because they're so scared that another attack might come because they nearly got defeated last time, because they were so stressed out, they keep guarding the south gate and they keep responding and sending out search teams on the south gate. And so, there, so the, the immune system is over-responding on the south gate. But that means that, soldiers, that attacking viruses that are coming to the north gate, they can get through quicker and cause havoc because the immune system is over-responding to a threat that has already passed. And so I'm, sh I'm sure many of us have heard of those stories of, um, you know, in the Vietnam War, at the end of the war, there were soldiers stuck in the middle of the jungle who actually didn't know that the war had ended. And when, when they were told, look, the war has ended, there's no need to fight, they didn't believe, they didn't believe the people because they were so traumatized by the war and they were, they were on one, well, their focus was to defeat the enemy. And yet the war had ended for like a year or two years. And so in the same way, there are parts of the immune system that become so heavily conditioned to fight off the virus or a bacteria or the issue that, they, that opportunistic viruses tend to then flourish in the body. That's a great analogy. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah, to me it makes sense. You know, what? And, and, and it leads me, you know, it begs the question then, um, would antivirals or um, immunomodulators be helpful in this case? Um, and maybe that makes sense why when, when you would start an initial um, treatment like that, the die-off effect um, really can be quite brutal. Exactly. So... Um, you know, I've had some patients who have had some benefit on antivirals. And, but what I believe is the antivirals aren't necessarily getting to the root cause. If someone takes antivirals and that clears up their condition and they're completely better, then clearly the symptoms were purely coming from those opportunistic viruses and they didn't necessarily have the underlying fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but I believe that when you're taking these antivirals, they are... You know, they may well help reduce those viral titers and um, they may improve symptoms to a certain extent. But I believe that when you get to the root cause of why the body itself is not eliminating these viruses, when, when you reset the, ner the nervous system and you reset the immune system, then the body itself has the power to deal with these opportunistic viruses. And many of us don't realize that actually a lot of these drugs that we take they are not necessarily doing what the body should have done. They're just helping the body do what it needs to do. Um, so I think you know, if people find that antivirals are useful, then I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against them. Um, but I, I don't think they necessarily get to the root cause of, 
what's causing the condition. Yeah, I mean, you're so variable for so many people. You know, and I wasn't going to go into this. I was going to jump right into exhaustion, but um, it seems to be a good uh, segue for this. Um, I know that we've tried a lot of vitamin therapy um, mm-hmm. with my daughter, and we have initial great results. And then over the, a few weeks, they, they seem to lose their effect. And a lot of people tell me the same thing with diet. We never had any success with diet. Um, but what role do um, um, vitamin supplementation and diet play? They do play a part. So when the nervous system is overstimulated, when you're in this chronic sympathetic state, as it's known, the resources of the body are being used up, so the vitamins are being used up, etc. And so when you do replace the vitamins, make sure you're eating a healthy diet. But, you know, I'm a big fan of having the vitamins naturally from diet, but obviously taking supplements where required. That may, you, a person may notice an initial improvement. But once again, it's, it's not getting to the root cause of what the issue is. It's just helping the body deal with the symptoms. And when someone does have a, a relapse or something like that, then uh, you know, the, the vitamins won't necessarily be dealing with that, which is why the, the symptoms will come back. Yeah. And there is also another effect. So when we start on a new therapy uh, or a new treatment, initially there is that sense of positive anticipation that I will get something out of this, that something positive will come from this. And studies show that when someone gets into that state, the, temporarily the signals from the amygdala can be dampened and have not such an effect. And therefore the vicious cycle can begin to slow down. But once, that, once that they've, taken, they've used that therapy, they've noticed improvement, there can be a virtuous circle, but once the amygdala gets overstimulated for some other reason, such as external stress or the pain gets worse for, for, no, for no reason, then the vicious cycles can come back and then the person loses that uh, positive anticipation that that particular treatment is going to work for them, and then they get back into the state that they were before. Um, and I have so many people who've told me that, whether it be acupuncture, diet, supplements, etc., they've tried a therapy, it's worked for a little while, and they felt much better, but then they've gone back to their normal state. And I believe the only logical explanation for this is a temporarily slowdown in the neurological um, pathways of the brain due to the, the positive anticipation of improvement. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what you're saying is, is pretty much what we're, we all, we're living. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the acupuncture. You know, when my daughter, her first pain, which now they're referring to as a fibro pain, but who knows, um, she had excruciating ear pain for eight months. Five right. ENTs, nobody could find out where this pain was coming from. And finally, we had an acupuncturist that got her out of the really severe pain. It still lingers, but... Um, but the thing was, you know, she did was able to get her out of the pain, but as she continued, it actually started worsening, yeah. um, and we discontinued that. And the same thing with magnesium. I mean, we're going to move on to exhaustion. Exhaustion is huge. I mean, they, 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 I mean sleep was pretty much non-existent for a year and a half, um, and magnesium for a while um, helped with sleep. But the exhaustion is absolutely debilitating, um, mostly more for the chronic fatigue than the fibro, but from the pain of the fibro, they can't sleep. So, and post-exercise malaise is also universal. What is happening in the body to cause such exhaustion? And, you know, there's always the question, does exercise help or hurt? Okay, so let's deal with the exhaustion first. Now, imagine that the, this nervous system reaction that is sometimes called the sympathetic nervous system reaction, although it's not very, it's not very sympathetic, unfortunately. No, not at all. Um, it's the wrong, the wrong tag for it, really. 
it, when you overstimulate the body, that is designed to occur for a few minutes at a time when you're in danger. So let's say your boss shouts at you at work and tells you off for, for not performing correctly. You'll have a sympathetic response, which might last a few minutes, or if you're unlucky, maybe half an hour as you get stressed about it. But gradually that response should calm down and you should go back to normal. Now, in this condition, it's unremitting and it's continuous. So you're constantly stimulating the central nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. That is massively depleting all the, the reserves in the glands of various neurotransmitters and, um, and hormones. It's using up all the, the actual energy that we typically think of energy as in you know, the energy that the mitochondria produce in the cells. It's using up all that energy. And the mental energy it's using up in terms of overstimulating the, the brain circuitry and using up the energy there. So, you know, energy is quite an amorphous concept, but really we're talking about physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy, and to some extent spiritual energy as well, all gets very depleted. And so it, you, can, you can have that complete feeling of exhaustion because of that overstimulation. And the interesting thing is a lot of patients report that they feel completely exhausted, but their brain can sometimes still feel very wired. Right. They can feel like they just can't relax their minds, and their, their minds are constantly feeling busy. And that is a clue to the fact that the brain and the amygdala are overstimulating and causing that exhaustion. Because if it was just general exhaustion, then you would also have that feeling of just you know, not being able to think either. And most patients report that they, they tend to have the yo-yo between having a wired feeling where their mind feels very busy to then a feeling in the head that they just can't even think about anything because they feel so weak mentally and emotionally, um, obviously as well as, as well as physically. And so that exhaustion is, is down to that overstimulation. And to give you a clue of this, but only, you know, a kind of at the, only 1% of exhaustion, if you take somebody who has worked really hard all day in an office in a stressful environment and they've been sitting behind a desk, they haven't done any physical activity, but they've got really stressed all day. And I'm sure we've all had the experience, you know, of coming home and sitting in front of the sofa and feeling absolutely exhausted even though, we, though we've done no physical activity. Now, that exhaustion is just 1% of the exhaustion that you have in, in fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. But it gives us a clue. It is because the nervous system is overstimulated that that has caused the exhaustion. And in post-exercise malaise, what's happening there is that the body, because it's used up all the resources um, from the overstimulation, exercise requires more resources but the body just doesn't have those resources to give. And so when you do, if you do over-exercise and push yourself too hard, there are further complications that occur. And you know, there are some researchers that have some very complex ideas as to how that post-exercise malaise seems to happen the next day or the day after. I believe there's actually potentially damage to the muscles if you exercise when you physically are so drained because oh, the muscles so are not getting the resources. <laughs> the muscles are not getting enough resources and so when you push your muscles too hard even though they're feeling weak i do believe there's actual physical damage and that physical damage only causes the pain um you know they often find there's a delay of a day or two as the repair kicks in so once the body tries to repair the muscles that's when you get the the pain one or two days later and you know what i want to just go with two points that you said there um you know i think what's really frustrating um for these people also is because they do have that busy mind i mean we call it overthinking um yeah. 
And but you combine that with the brain fog, and then the inability to your 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 mind wants you to get things done, you want to function, and your body says no, and then your brain fog. It's just so overwhelming, um, yeah. you know, mentally to deal with this. But you know what I, I want to talk about with the exercise and why I asked you this is because, you know, I've, like I said, been on a journey with this. And um, we saw, you know, one of the top palliative pediatric care specialists um, in the country not too long ago. And do you, do, are you aware that what some um, people are recommending now are these boot camps, which I think are absolutely off the wall. That's my personal opinion. Um, But where you go to these places and you're there for like six weeks and they get you up at eight in the morning and you do hard pounding aerobics and you do this for weeks. And they say, you know, they say that that's what breaks the the cycle in the brain. And obviously I'm talking to you, so, you know, we're not, we're not entertaining that. But it just seems to me that when a body is, is, um, you know, so run down that something like that, how could that really change the amygdala and change the messages from the brain? Uh, yes, I mean it's it's you know it may well work for a very small percentage of the people there. I mean, I'd be interested to see what what results they think they're getting. But for most people, it will cause longer term damage to do something like that. So you have to pace the body and listen to the, what what the body is actually telling you uh, with these symptoms. And um, exercise has its role to play. I, I call it activity. You, you know, certainly there has to be some level of activity but it can't be at a point where you're just pushing your body to do more than it's physically able to do. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, And there's something else I just wanted to add in terms of sleep as well. The key to this condition is actually getting the sleep rhythms corrected. That's one of the keys, at least. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the sleep is so key is because that deep sleep that we get is when the body really repairs and heals itself and replenishes itself. Now, what they find is that in studies, if people have um, a disrupted sleep, it's often because the amygdala is still active at night. And because the amygdala is active at night, it, the, the body does not go into those deep delta wave, delta wave rhythms of sleep where that repair occurs. And in CFS, fibro, it's the same issue. The brain is not getting into those deeper repairing states at night. And therefore... The person wakes up in the morning and feels completely exhausted. And, you know, so th- there are so many clues that point to the amygdala because most sleep studies show that it's the amygdala which is still alert at night when they, you know, when they put sleeping people in these, these brain scanners. Mm-hmm. And so it is only when you retrain the amygdala, when you're able to calm it down, even at night, then you get more of that deep restorative sleep and then the symptoms improve the next day. And Studies also show that people who don't have fibro but have, you know, days or weeks of disrupted sleep often wake up with pain in their body. So pain and sleep are inevitably linked here. You know, and I see, I know that, you know, we've, we've resolved on my daughter's sleep issues and, um, you know, in some respects it has helped her. Um, you know, it hasn't been the answer to everything, but um, she, she's functioning much better. But, um, you know, so many people that I speak to um, and, um, you know, other parents that have this, because it's not as uh, rare as people think um, for children, that the sleeping is the problem, is that they're up until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, They don't get a restful sleep. And then they're sleeping until noon. Um, So how does someone 
break that cycle because I, I, I agree with you. I think that breaking the, the problem with sleep is really key to, to, to even getting this whole process started. Well, the key is that the brain has to calm down in the waking state. So when the brain is calmer in the waking state, it'll ease into a deep sleep state much easier at night. So, for instance, some people do find, and I recommend this to all my patients, that in those last two hours before you go to sleep, it's best to avoid anything stimulating, whether that be TV or stimulating foods or sugar or caffeine or anything like that, but instead focusing on something that relaxes your nervous system. That might be um, a meditation or that might be a hot bath or that might be actually um, laughing. So laughing is known to be one of the most powerful uh, ways of stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. And so I encourage my patients to buy their favorite comedies, put them on at night, and laugh out loud until they just feel like something is just calmed down or released from their bodies. So whatever someone has to do to calm the bodies down before they go to sleep, it can be useful. Now, that doesn't mean that will solve the sleeping issues, but it at least will improve the situation. It's funny you say that because um, my daughter used to love these um, <clears throat> murder mysteries. And, you know, one of the docs says, well, don't let her watch that at night. Um, you know, watch something funny. And we've started watching, like, Big Bang Theory and Modern Family every night. And, you know, I think it, it really does make make a difference. But um, well, I love Big Bang Theory, and I have been accused sometimes of being a Sheldon. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Who doesn't love Sheldon? <laughs> um, you know, but it really is. I mean, people are key is, is so difficult. And, you know, medications, and you know, too, I mean, I know that, um, you know, medications sometimes um, help with sleep, not so much sleep aids, but, um, mm. you know, as we're going to go into now, the antidepressants that, um, you know, they found really um, quite accidentally that, you know, they were treating these people with fibromyalgia pain, um, you know, that developed, you know, severe depression and anxiety, and let's face it, who wouldn't, um, and how it, it helped the pain. Um, so, so you know, calming your, your, like you said, your mind and your amygdala during the day does uh, flow over into um, the night. Um, you know, and talking about medicine, just, you know, uh, to bring this up, you know, why don't narcotics work? I mean, my daughter's been in the intensive care unit. That's how severe, um, you know, hers is. And, I mean, you know, they tried morphine. They tried everything. Nothing put a dent in the pain. So why is it that narcotics, for most, I'm not going to generalize, for most people really aren't the answer and actually do more harm to the heart and um, other organs? It's a temporary sticking plaster to the problem. And so when you take a drug initially, first of all, the body is getting used to the drug. So people in this state, their bodies are sensitive. So you're sensitive to any new emotional trigger, physical trigger, chemicals trigger. So that's the first issue. Even if your body then does accept the new drug, it may work temporarily, but then the brain and the body compensate for those narcotics. And there is always, well, I, I, I'm not going to say always, there is often a addictive quality to a lot of these drugs. So we spend a lot of our time at the clinic actually helping people come off these drugs. Because when you try to come off them, often the symptoms are worse than you ever had <laughs> before, you, before you started taking them. I would imagine, so, yeah. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't take them. I'm just saying that they are sticking plasters to the problem and the body will uh, compensate. So if you are you know, taking SSRIs, you're taking antidepressants, over time, the brain will compensate for that. So then when you start coming off the antidepressants, you may actually start feeling anxiety and start feeling a lot worse than you ever did before. And so my suggestion to people is always, you know, if, if something 
so extreme that you have to take the drugs, is that fine? But I would focus on things which are natural, natural ways of calming the mind and brain down, which will have a longer-term effect and, and help people. Right. And, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, listen, if there's somebody out there that's finding some relief, I mean, uh, God bless. I mean, I wish I had found something for my daughter. Um, you know, and I, I can understand where, you know, if you find something to relieve the pain that, you know, you, you're going to try it. But, you know, I also know that, you know, what you're saying is true. It's really, you know, mm. it, it's it's not the end all to it. Um, you know, and then on top of it, um, you know, with all of this happening, I mean, you, you mind, you know, your, you, you, the pain, the exhaustion, you know, you a lot of people wind up with, um, you know, we'll go into two, two topics. The sensory issues come into play. Um, yeah. There's an over-simulation, uh, really, of the senses, and it's, it's like, you know, misfiring. And a lot of people become oversensitive to sound, light, touch, textures, and it causes agitation. Um, so how does the amygdala play a role in these sensory issues come out? Because a lot of people really feel that on top of it, that's what puts them over the edge. Imagine a wild tiger is running towards you. Now, in that moment, you need all of your senses to be heightened. You need your sight to be heightened so you can see exactly what that tiger is about to do. You need your hearing heightened to see if there are other tigers around and which direction you need to run into. So all your senses become heightened to suddenly deal with that situation. And you know, often people say when they're in, in the middle of an emergency, suddenly it's as if time stands still. Even that experience of time standing still is when the brain is attempting to, it's giving you all your resources. So time is looking as if it's going slower because you are processing so much more information to try and escape the danger. Now the issue is, if that overstimulation continues, then you start becoming oversensitive to sound, light, touch, um, you know, chemicals, etc., because that system has not switched off. And that overstimulation is not only um, from the senses, so the, there's more signals coming from the senses to the brain. The thalamus then magnifies those signals and passes those signals onto the insula and also the amygdala. The insula, that's another part of the brain, makes a decision on the emotional context of those uh, signals and passes it onto the amygdala, and the amygdala decides whether to then um, create a, a stimulation of the nervous system as a, as a result of it. So all these brain structures are processing tons and tons and tons of information, but they are on high alert, and they're, they're taking in too much information, they're processing too much information, and they are oversensitized to that information. And that's why people become sensitive to different things. And that's why across all of these different conditions, you find that people have higher rates of um, you know, tinnitus, so um, you know, ringing in the ears, really? sensitivity oh, to loud noises, sensitivities okay. to light, etc. Um, and and uh, food allergies, chemical allergies. It's just because the brain and the body are just oversensitive. And we need to work on whatever we need to do to retrain the body that it is not in danger. You are not in danger anymore. And, and if you can get the message to your brain and body that you're not in danger, then it will begin to calm down. But just like those soldiers standing outside the castle, you need to really explain to those soldiers that we are not in danger, the war is over, and you can now relax. And once they relax, then 
the healing begins. You know, it reminds me of um, this um, sitcom, well, it's not something, a TV show that used to be on many, many years ago, Lost in Space, and there was this robot that used to go around going, danger, danger, danger. Yeah, you know, I, I remember. When I started learning about it, I was like, that's what it's like. It's like, you know, that little... A uh, robot just going around telling your brain that you're in danger when uh, really you're not, and it can it can really, you know, it can be so confusing because I hear so many people that say that that say it's, it's like having arthritis, that the pain is that severe, um, and and it leads to the the gastrointestinal problems as well. Yes. Yes. So in terms of the gastrointestinal problems, the the link is once again there with the sympathetic nervous system. When you're running from, away from that wild tiger, you don't need resources in your gut to be uh, digesting food. You need all your resources to go to your muscles and to your eyes and everything to, to get you away from the danger. So the gastrointestinal problems are because the, um, the digestion system of the body is not at its 100% functioning. So that's the first aspect. Secondly, because of stress, the muscles are all tensed. So the muscles in the gut are tensed up, which contributes to IBS and which can contribute to you know, diarrhea and constipation and, and, it, and that can, it can yo-yo between the two. And then the other effects are the combination of the different bacteria, of good and bacteria in the stomach can also, um, the, the delicate balance can be disrupted. Uh, there are some people who believe there's a leaky gut syndrome uh, where chemicals can actually leak into the blood through the gut. So there are so many different complications that can cause gut problems. Um, well, what do you think about the, you know, the brain-gut connection is, 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 is um, you know, very well known in um, psychiatry. Um, do you think that there is an interchange between the brain-gut with serotonin as far as um, the amygdala and these disorders? Um, I don't think that that would be necessarily a, you know, any kind of cause here. No, I think that um, different patients will have different levels of issues in the gut um, you know, but in terms of serotonin levels, that's not something that I necessarily think is a core part of the theory, no. And, you know, I think that the way that doctors um, treat people, my, I mean, my daughter and myself were treated horribly for years. Um, sure. You know, and, and that's the story you hear from most people, that, you know, this, this, uh, there's something wrong with you, that, you know, this is all in your head. And what I loved about the two best doctors, the ones that are still treating my daughter, is they both handle something in the same way where after they reviewed everything and spoke to us and brought my daughter in, they said, first thing we want to tell you is you are not crazy. You are not mentally ill. You have fibromyalgia, and it is a real illness. And hearing those words is so validating to someone who's suffering with something that makes no sense to them. And your program makes sense to me. So... That's why I brought you on here. And, you know, your program you've developed to retrain the amygdala, and this is without medications. Um, so tell us what this program is and how a person can apply it. Right. Okay, just um, I thought I had a comment on your first um, statement there around you have fibromyalgia. I think a lot of patients will um, testify to the fact that it can feel like you're in this altered state, where when you have the condition, you go into this altered state where you feel very wired, you feel very vulnerable, there's a, almost like a feeling of a dark cloud over you, but then for whatever reason, suddenly you can have a few hours or a day where you feel absolutely fine, and you've literally, something slipped, something switched, and you can feel you know, very normal, and then you can go back into this altered state again. 
And it can feel like you're going crazy, but actually all that's happening there is the vicious circle can temporarily slow down, which can bring health back, and then suddenly it speeds up again and causes a lot more of the symptoms. And that can be very puzzling to understand, you know, why do I have good days and bad days and how does that work? So definitely no one's going crazy here. There's a perfectly you know, logical explanation, I believe, and I, I believe that more and more doctors and researchers are coming towards this conclusion that there is a central nervous system hypersensitivity of you know, different theories as to what the origin of that is, but there is a sensitivity there and there is a vicious loop there. And, um, you know, so it, there is a perfectly rational explanation, I believe, for what's going on. And, and you my, know, doctors really need to take care in, in how they, they approach this. I mean, I had my daughter's pediatrician who told her, get over it, suck it up. You're 13 years old. You should be out playing and not sitting home complaining. Yes. That's damaging it, to it, a child. It's very damaging because what, when someone has this condition, it's very important that you feel um, safe and secure in your exploration of how you're going to move through it. If someone's telling you that there's something wrong with you and it's your fault, then that can increase the level of uh, vulnerability. It can increase the level of hopelessness. Um, and it can cause very difficult emotions. And I have to help many patients who've got a lot of repressed anger against the people that, that treated them, oh, yeah. which is also still contributing to symptoms. So it's a very important part that, of right. the yeah, it's very important. Well, tell us about your program. We have uh, about 10, 15 minutes left, and I really want you to um, let everyone know what you have. Sure. So my program is a whole package of treatment to help someone retrain the amygdala. Now, what do we mean by this? Remember, initially, I talked about the inhibitory mechanisms in the brain. This process is designed to strengthen those inhibitory processes so the amygdala is not allowed to run riots and cause all of these symptoms and, and secondary problems. Now, initially when someone hears that there's no medication involved, uh, they may think that this is a, a psychological uh, treatment in, in some ways. I definitely believe that the illness is a physical illness in the body and that there is an issue in the brain which is so deeply in the brain that someone doesn't have control of it. You know, the condition is not someone's fault in any way. What my program is designed to do is to strengthen a part of the brain called the the prefrontal cortex. So that's the part of the brain that can send neurons down to the amygdala to stop the amygdala's reactions. Now, the best way to describe this is um, learning to drive. Okay. Now, let's say it's the first lesson on the first day of um, your first driving lesson. And you're sitting in the car. Now, if someone said to you, right, just really think positive and you'll be able to drive a car. You know, you've seen other people drive a car. Just be really positive, and I'm sure you'll be able to do it. Now, of course, you're not going to be able to drive a car. So this isn't positive thinking or positive reinforcement or CBT. This is about what you do in that driving lesson, which is that you gradually learn to steer the steering wheel and press the brake, press the accelerator, and do that in a coordinated way. So you teach and train your nervous system to drive a car until hopefully you know six months a year later you can now drive that car automatically without even thinking about it and you might even be eating a sandwich or god forbid be on the mobile phone whilst you're driving and that's because you've now automated those training processes in the brain and so it is with my program and it's it's not cbt it's a way of training the prefrontal cortex or the what we call the 
intellect part of the brain to teach it to control the amygdala's reactions. And so when they've done these studies in, um, in mice, they found that they can actually detect new neurons being created to control the amygdala's reactions when they've used these kinds of um, you know, approaches. And that's what this program is designed to do. And in the program, there are lots of new techniques that don't really have a, uh, you know, a background in normal therapies, but they are derived from things like neuro-linguistic programming, sometimes known as NLP, uh, certain breathing techniques, uh, cognitive restructuring techniques, um, self-awareness techniques, meditative techniques, lots of different ways that have been put together to create a unique set of tools that can retrain the amygdala. And it took me many years to hone these down to find out what seemed to work for most people most of the time. You know, so in a nutshell, a, that's what yeah, we're talking about. I've done a lot of shows on neuroplasticity because I am really a firm believer in you know rewiring the brain, and I've learned that you know the, the brain can be rewired at any age um, for just about any type of disorder to have some type of uh, benefit. <laughs> um, now, the program that you have um, mm -hmm. needs assistance. So, you know, I know that my concern was that, you know, you're in London, I'm here, um, but you've found a way to overcome that with um, coaches and with technology. So why don't you explain that to people and then um, let them know how they can uh, find you. Oh, and by the way, second-to-none videos on YouTube. Just look up um, Ashok Gupta. And um, unbelievable. You watch these videos, you are really, it's going to be an aha moment for you. Um, so you can go on YouTube and see those. But, um, again, how, how does this program work, and um, why do you need a coach to work with you? Right. So I was finding that um, people often couldn't afford to come and see me at my clinic in London, or they couldn't travel because, obviously, they weren't, they weren't well enough. So I decided right. to develop a home study course for people to learn uh, the techniques and uh, use them at home by themselves. So I have a home study DVD course, which has you know, 15 hours of DVDs, arranged as sessions. So they're like coming to my clinic and having a session with me, but in the interactive DVD format. And together in that, there's also a manual, there's some audio CDs. It's a, it's a whole package of treatment that I would have delivered at my clinic. Mm -hmm. Now, for, for most people, that's, that's enough. They can work with this at home by themselves. Um, but some people definitely do want and need that support. And so we have lots of different ways of supporting people. We have a forum on our website uh, where people can interact with other people who are doing the treatment, and we, we find that's a great way of not feeling like you're, you're on your own doing this. We also have coaches um, around the world, and at the moment we, we are looking to train someone up in the U.S., but we, most of our practitioners um, have the ability to do Skype coaching, and Skype mm -hmm. coaching works really well. And so um, wherever someone is in the world, they can have those interactive sessions which help someone with that. And one of the packages, um, I actually present a three-month webinar program as well. So you have the home study course, and every week uh, for an hour and a half, you have a session with myself in a group where I go through the different treatments and answer people's questions. So people can feel like they're being coached by me personally for three months. So there are many different options so that people don't feel they're on their own, and we want to give people as much support as, as possible as they go through this. Well, where can they find you? <clears throat> so the main way of getting information is to come to our website, which is www.guptaprogram.com. And unfortunately, it's the English spelling, so it's uh, guptaprogram, 
with an extra M and an E at the end. So it's guptaprogram.com. And there you can sign up for free videos. So if you sign up with your name and email, then you'll send a week worth of free videos which go through the whole explanation, the hypothesis, and some videos of people who've been through this treatment and their experiences. So you get lots of um, free information there. And on the website, there is also a, um, a link to my explanation um, of how the condition occurs and what happens, and that's a very detailed explanation as well. It really and is. My, very good. My, my medical papers are on there as well. So most of the information you can, you can find on, on that website. Well, I thank you so much for joining me. Um, I know you've helped me. I'm going to be uh, speaking to you later. Um, I'm going to be definitely ordering this and um, finding a, a good coach um, to help us. And, um, you know, would you have any last words for the listeners? Uh, yes, you know, I, I believe in, in, in doing this ethically. So my aim is to help as many people as possible. And at the moment, we're trying to pursue research. So we're talking to doctors in the U.S. and in Europe to get some larger studies done. I and mean, we've done our own small studies, but we want to do some larger studies. And until I get the definitive proof um, in a large-scale trial that this works for people, um, I'm offering uh, people their money back if it doesn't work for them. So with the treatment, if people use it, if they notice you know, no improvement for up to a year, then they can return it and get all their money back, no questions asked. So I think it, for, for people, if people are thinking about it, I want them to you know, watch the videos, find out more, and they've got nothing to lose by putting it into practice. Absolutely not. And like I said, you know, um, you're coming at this from a, a very unique angle um, for most people that are researching this and doing work on this. So, again, thank you so much for joining me. And, um, you know, when your studies are done, I hope you'll come back. Yes, no, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, everyone, I hope that, um, you know, this, this interview helped you. I know it helped me. And um, if you'd like to find out more about me and The Coffee Clatch, you can go to www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.